Let us now open God's holy word together. And we will read two passages from the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians. Chapter 15, we'll read the verses 12 through 28 and then 50 to 58. And after the reading of God's holy word, let us sing together Psalm 16. So, first of all then, from the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, we begin at verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins." Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Even Christ we have hope in this life only. We are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says, all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. And then we go to verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The text for the sermon this afternoon is taken from the first letter of Paul to the Thessalonians, chapter 4, the verses 13 through 18. And there we read God's word as follows. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. After the sermon, let us sing together from hymn 68, the stanzas 1, 2, 5, and 6. Beloved brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, when you work your way through the letter of Paul to the Thessalonians, you learn of his great desire to visit that congregation again. Interesting that when you read about his first interaction with the Thessalonians, Acts chapter 17, you discover that he hadn't really had that much time to spend with the congregation. He went there, and after about three weeks, then already he kind of was facing pressure from the Jews who stirred up the local authorities, and before you know it, Paul was forced to leave town. So perhaps he might have spent as little as six weeks, if even that much, in Thessalonica, and yet by his short ministry there, he had been able to establish a congregation of believers, a very strong congregation that comes out in the first few chapters where he also commends them for their great faith and their faithfulness. But because he only has spent so little time with them, you notice that he was really eager to visit them again. You read, for example, in chapter 3, verse 10, to supply what was lacking in their faith. Because, of course, there is always more teaching to be done. 
The congregation needs reminders and encouragement, all the more so when you could say spiritually it is still an infant congregation, barely established, barely on its own two feet, and then its pastor is torn away from it. So that need for supplying what is lacking, teaching, further encouragement, in a way you could say, well, that captures the nature of ministry to this day. But as we turn to chapter 4, kind of in the lead-up also towards our text, we see that Paul did not wait until he would actually be able to visit the Thessalonians before he set about this task of seeking to supply what was lacking in their faith. No, chapter 4 is the beginning, you could say, of where he begins to do this via letter. And if you look at the parts, the parts before our text, you see that he addresses them about sexual holiness based on the fact that God is holy and God has given us the Holy Spirit. He also reminded them of the need to keep on working faithfully as an expression of brotherly love. And it's interesting as you read these things, then Paul is not saying that the Thessalonians were complete disasters in these matters, that they hadn't made any progress at all. No, he commends them. They're doing many good things, but he urges them to do so more and more. And that well captures the nature, you could say, of our Christian life. We have made some progress, but as long as we live on this earth, there will be an opportunity to do more and more what we have begun to do. Now, it's good to keep in mind that we are in this section where Paul was busy supplying what was lacking, especially in terms of reminding and teaching the congregation how to walk in a way that pleases the Lord God. And he continues to do that also in the text we have before us this afternoon. Because after giving instruction about proper Christian sexual conduct, proper Christian attitude towards our daily work, then Paul goes on to give instruction about grieving over those who have fallen asleep. And now this talk of grieving will undoubtedly have our attention because we know that grieving is not limited to the time when an actual death occurs to a loved one, or even the time of the accompanying funeral. It's true that with time the intensity of grief over the loss of a loved one may lessen, but, but there will always be times of the year that will trigger memories, maybe birthdays, anniversaries, and when those events pass by again, then new waves of sadness may come over an individual as they reflect on a loved one who has left this earth. Now we can be thankful that the Holy Spirit, through our text for this afternoon, speaks to us also about this tender part of our lives, showing how our faith shapes how we grieve and how it helps us deal with grief. And that he may do his work of teaching, directing, comforting, I proclaim to you this afternoon, our grieving over those who have fallen asleep is shaped by the hope of the resurrection. And we consider, first of all, the basis of this hope, secondly, the details of this hope, and finally, the application of this hope. So our grieving over those who have fallen asleep is shaped by the hope of the resurrection. And then we consider, first of all, the basis of this hope. Now, as we begin to work out this first point, I highlight how Paul is not forbidding grieving. 
After all, grieving is a normal human response. We know that Abraham, he grieved over the death of his beloved wife, Sarah. And we know the Lord Jesus, how he wept and he showed also his grief when he stood at the tomb of Lazarus. And he did that even though he knew he was going to raise him from the dead. Now, obviously, in the case of the Thessalonians, they were grieving also the death of loved ones. Now, while we speak of the death of loved ones, in our text we don't even read that particular terminology, but we read about those who have fallen asleep. That's a common way of referring to those who had died in the ancient world, not just among believers, but it was a general term used also by others. We find that already also in the Old Testament, of course, when the king died, we are told that he slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the tomb with their fathers. It's interesting to note that our word cemetery is actually derived from the word we find in our text for those who are asleep in the sleep of death. So literally you could say that the word cemetery tells us that that place is is a dormitory, a group bedroom. As we continue working through our text, we will realize how good a term that really is, a dormitory, a place for sleeping from which one day you will wake up again. But as we look more carefully at Paul's words, we learn also then the specific concern that seemed to magnify the grief of his readers. And that grief was linked to the eager expectation of the coming of the Lord Jesus. You should understand that that this hope for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory was very strong in the early Christian church, the first generation Christians. They, They were very strong on what today we might term with a big fancy word, eschatology. They were thinking about that an awful lot. When will the Lord Jesus Christ come again? Eschatology, the doctrine of the last things. We can also actually use a term here that often is used with respect to to Christmas. You know that when we have December rolling around, often we say, well, now we are in Advent. We are supposed to be thinking about the coming of the Lord Jesus. And then we think especially of his coming as he was born in Bethlehem from his mother Mary. But we should understand that this word Advent, while it can be indeed used to refer to the coming of the Son of God into the world when he was born in Bethlehem, for the first generation Christians, they were thinking of Advent more in the terms of the Lord Jesus Christ coming in glory. It's interesting. There is no indication in the early church that they really celebrated Christmas, the coming of Jesus into the world. But they were very busy thinking about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory. And they were looking forward. They weren't looking back to when he came into the flesh. They were looking forward to when he would come again in the flesh to make all things new. It's a good example to follow. When we think of Advent, don't be stuck at Christmas. No, look ahead. Advent is a word that points to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in glory, a point also stressed, for example, whenever we celebrate the Lord's Supper, where we eat and drink in remembrance of him until he comes. Lord's Supper makes us think back to the cross, but very quickly it makes us look ahead. Don't get stuck there. Don't get stuck in the past. Look ahead to what 
Jesus will do when he comes in glory. Now, why did this eager longing for Christ to come add to the grief of the Thessalonians? As you read through Paul's explanation, it comes down to this, that those who were still living had great concern about the believers who had died, that they were going to miss out on this great event that they were so eagerly anticipating, that they were going to miss out on on really the joy and all the things that this coming entailed. You can well understand, if you are eagerly waiting for something to happen and, and the excitement is just growing in your heart by the minute to the point that you don't want to leave your spot because you don't want to miss out when it finally is going to happen, well, if you are so excited about it, then you also start to get excited for those around you, and you get a bit worried if those around you all of a sudden have to go away for something. They might miss out when the moment finally comes. You look forward to it, and you want all to be there when that great event takes place. Now, the apostle sends the need to elaborate to take away this concern. For it appears that in the relatively short period of time that he had been with them, he had not been able to address this fully with the Thessalonians. Because he says that they were uninformed and they needed to be informed. Interesting. Notice how how their comfort and joy depended on being informed about, depended upon knowledge. Kind of reinforced also Every time you think again of how the catechism approaches, in order to live and die in the joy of our only comfort, we need to know certain things. Joy is always linked to knowledge. If you don't have enough knowledge, then you're going to lack comfort. You're going to be uncertain in your faith. And so, to supply what is lacking, to to give them that comfort, Paul points of all things, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he right away ties that together with the resurrection of those who have fallen asleep. Notice that. Points to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then right away he ties that to the resurrection of those who have fallen asleep. Because he writes that as God raised Jesus, so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And by doing this, He points us, of course, again to the unity of the believers with Jesus Christ. It's a marvelous thing. Through faith, we become one with him. Paul also makes that point in Romans chapter 6, for example, where he speaks about baptism, how that points to the fact that we have died with Christ. And he goes on, it also means we have been raised with Christ. Makes us realize that, that... when we believe in Jesus Christ and we stay with him, we are joined to him, and Jesus does not forget those who have fallen asleep, that unity remains. A point that Paul also makes in his letter to the Philippians, that those who die in the Lord are very much alive with him, are even closer to him than we can ever be in this life. But still, even though those are very comforting aspects, in this particular letter, he is addressing the fact that, yes, it's all very nice that those who belong to Christ are still with Christ, even when they die, they they are joined to him in the heavenly places. But the fact is, it looks like that those who have fallen asleep will miss out on seeing 
Jesus come in glory. But this will not be the case, Paul says, because Jesus, when he comes, will take them along. The risen Christ will bring along those who have fallen asleep. But notice then, it is this hope of the resurrection, which is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that sets the believers apart from those who do not believe. It's interesting, among the pagans of those days, those who, didn't, those who worshipped other gods, it was quite common that, that death was seen as basically beginning an unending night. So it wasn't even seen as an end of existence, but as an unending night from which one would never awake. And of course, that would also shape your grief. All, all the more you could say if a death was what today we would call tragic, when a person dies very young through the cruelty of another in an accident, then, then it would be a hole in one's heart because you would think, well, that person is now in the everlasting darkness. He will never awake again. And there is no way you could comfort anyone in a situation like that. But it's different for the believers because there is that hope of the resurrection rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ because of that we know it is not an everlasting night. But there will be a day when the person will awake again. So clearly, the ground of the hope is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which leads also to the resurrection of the believers. But Paul doesn't leave it at that. He gives details to address the concern that those who have fallen asleep will miss out on the event of Christ's coming. So that's our second point. The details come out in the verses 15 to 17. Notice how, how Paul indicates that he is not just making this up. No, he says it is a word from the Lord. Now when we hear a phrase like that, a word from the Lord, that might refer either to something the Lord Jesus Christ taught during his ministry. You find many of these words of the Lord Jesus in the gospel accounts. And we know that he spoke about his coming again, his coming in glory. We think of Matthew 24, where he speaks about the end of the age. Or you think about the account of Lazarus' death, and then also, as he speaks and interacts with Mary, he speaks about the hope of the resurrection, that one day Lazarus will, will rise again. Mary believed that already as an Old Testament belief, in the Old Testament frame of mind. So in that respect, when you look through the Gospels, you have many indications of the teaching of the resurrection. It was part of the Old Testament belief. You know that Paul, when he interacted with the Sadducees as a Pharisee, he said, no, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. It was firmly implanted in the minds of the believers. That's why in the Old Testament, they took such great pains to bury their beloved in anticipation of the resurrection. But the Sadducees and the Greek influence didn't believe in the resurrection. They must have been captivated also by the thought of an everlasting night, everlasting darkness. So there are many indications from the Lord himself about the day of a resurrection. But now there is something else that is being communicated here in our passage that is not really found elsewhere. So 
And Paul also speaks here about the word of the Lord. It could be that there was other teaching that is not recorded in the Gospels that the disciples knew about, that they talked about together, or that the Apostle Paul received in some special way as an inspired apostle. Either way, Paul is saying, this is not my thinking, this is a word from the Lord. And what is new? Well, I remind you of the specific concern of the Thessalonians about those who had died, who had fallen asleep, missing out on the experience of Christ coming. But Paul says, don't worry about that. That's not going to happen. Because he says, he writes there, we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So he's making it clear that that really, from the point of experiencing the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and seeing him come in glory, there is no specific advantage for those who still happen to be alive when that event takes place. Well, how is this not going to happen? How is it going to be worked out? Well, Paul speaks about Christ descending from heaven. Of course, nothing new. That's what the angels also told the disciples. Acts chapter 1, after they had seen the Lord Jesus Christ ascend into heaven, they said to them, you will see him come back exactly the same way as you saw him go, upon the clouds of heaven, very visible, very public. It's also very evident, if you think of those words, by the cry of command, the voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God. We, we have here an image of, of a king or a Caesar who would be making a trip through his domain. He would visit various cities. He wouldn't kind of quietly sneak into the city, but there would be trumpeters ahead of him. There would be people shouting, Caesar is coming! Everyone stand up! Everyone be ready to welcome him! Everyone there to cheer his entrance into the city! Because those kings didn't enter quietly. They entered with an entourage. And a whole city would know, they would have known ahead of time, that indeed they were going to be visited. Even to this day, you know, world leaders, they tend to have themselves introduced. Here comes the President of the United States. Here comes the Prime Minister of Canada. Even for f- f- leaders today, there is that kind of announcement of their coming. Well, all the more so for the Lord Jesus Christ. A triple kind of announcement, a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God. No quiet affair. Not quiet in a sense like the ascension, only seen by the disciples, but very public to be heard by the world. Now, this very uh, public coming of our Lord should be noted because this particular passage we are dealing with right now is often used by those who, who speak about what is called the rapture. You might have heard about that, the idea of a rapture, where they speak about at a certain point in history, all of a sudden, the believers will be snatched out of the world, and then the world kind of goes on quietly, but no one really noticed when it happened. You might have seen those kind of bumper stickers, maybe more for the older generations, used to say, if you see this car moving without a driver, I've been raptured. Because that's how they thought it would happen. People would just leave the world, but the rest of the world would keep on going. And then all this ties in with certain views about dispensations, millennialism, Jesus coming again and bringing in some kind of thousand-year reign. But this rapture idea is kind of quiet. No one noticed except the believers being gone and the empty chair or the empty cars. But this is not supported by this passage at all. There is no quiet event here. 
This is a very public, very obvious event. Everyone will notice when there is this cry of command, the voice of the archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God. Now we should note next what effect this loud announcing of our Lord's advent has. Notice, it will bring about the resurrection of the dead. Now, in this particular passage, Paul is not concerned about the resurrection of the unbelievers and the judgment waiting for them. No, his focus is on the resurrection of those who have fallen asleep in the Lord. That is, the believers. Now, and here also, again, very critical, we should note that Paul says that those who have fallen asleep will rise first. First means there's a sequence. So first before what? Well, before anything happens involving those who are still alive. Think back to what Paul said, that those who are alive will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So that means that if we would be in that blessed position of not having to face death, but still being alive when the Lord Jesus Christ comes, then actually we won't have one over on those who have gone before us in the sense that we will see him before they get to see him. Or the case that, that they're going to come with him from the other side, and, but we have the blessed position of seeing him come towards us. No, it's not that way at all. It's the case that by rising from the dead, the believers who have gone before us, then joining those who are still alive, Everyone will see the Lord Jesus Christ coming at the same time. The church of all ages will see, look to heavens, and see Christ come towards it. It's quite a picture. You know how it can be when, when you are waiting eagerly for someone. Perhaps in a case in a family that, that mom has gone away to visit some relatives in another part of the country, and then... Dad takes the children to the airport to go pick up mom again. And, of course, if mom has been gone for a little while, then the children are so eager to see her come again. And the children are so eager, you know, that might even be a bit of a competition, that they kind of jostle together as they stand there looking because they want to be the first one to see mom coming through the, through the door. They want to have that honor. See mom first. And then when they see mom coming, they may shout, I saw her. I, I saw her first. Might even be a bit of a competition, a bit of a, a struggling match. That's important, that they want to see mom first. Well, when it comes to seeing the Lord, indeed, we should all be looking eagerly. But no one will be able to say, I saw him first. No, the timing and the sequence is such that all believers of all ages will see the Lord Jesus Christ at the same time. But the way that Paul describes it here is that we should not individualize our relationship with the Lord, but we should see ourselves as part of the church of all ages, the Catholic church, the bride. It's interesting how, how the relationship between Christ and the believers is put in terms of Christ on the one side and the collective believers together, the church as a unity, the church as the bride. And so we see here the church as one, even though it is made up of innumerable members, the church as one, in a sense, craning its neck to look towards the heavens to see him come in glory. And in this case, the church as bride will not only see, 
but then also go up into the heavens to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not the case of Jesus comes with all the saints who have gone before, so one group and then the other group here. No, all the believers together. The church as one group meets the one bride, the one Savior. That's the perspective that is given here before us. And of course then there comes that promise to always be with the Lord. Because then the bride and the bridegroom, hey, the bride again, the church as a collective, will always be with the Lord and they will always live together happily ever after in the new heaven and new earth. Of course, I bring in some elements here from what we read also among Corinthians 15 as well as Revelation chapter 20 through 22. But the main point here is that no one, not even those long departed, will miss out on that glorious event when Jesus comes again. Adam will stand beside Abraham, who will stand beside David, beside Paul, beside us, beside believers from the other side of the world, and we will all see our Savior come in glory. And all this leads to our third point, the application of this hope. Now, the application comes out in verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And here we see how, again, doctrine is always practical. You can do something with it. Because facts help us live in the joy of faith. At the beginning of the passage, we noticed how Paul says that they were uninformed about those who had fallen asleep. And he didn't want them to be that way. And being uninformed, well, that might cause the Thessalonians to grieve as the world would grieve as those who do not have the hope of the resurrection would take away their joy. Knowledge, again, is essential for comfort and joy. It's very encouraging. We can even translate the word encouraging as comforting to know how all believers together will witness our Savior come in glory. But now we should note how Paul writes, encourage one another. This is so true when it comes to dealing with the death of loved ones. You know, in times of death, yes, we, we may know the right answers. They might be floating back there somewhere in our mind. We've learned those and we know the different passages of Scripture. But it is, as one author said, it is hard to bring our faith and our emotions together. We know it, but we don't feel it. It's hard to bring those two things together. And that's why we need others to remind us, to help us remember these words about Jesus' coming. We need to remember that the death, in effect, is sleep. It's a very deep sleep, a sleep from which we cannot awake a person who has fallen into that sleep. But what we can do, God will do, through Jesus Christ, and because of Jesus Christ, that he was died, who was raised, who was raised from the dead, then it will become very clear that indeed it was a sleep in which the person entered. That's when it will become clear that that cemetery indeed was just a dormitory because it will not hold the bodies forever, but they will rise again. Now, as we work on out the application of this hope, there is another important aspect to keep in mind so that our grieving will be different from those who have no hope. 
And what I mean is this, that in our society, which does not want to know God and is quite proud about it, it has become a trend to kind of do away with funerals. Don't really want to use that term too much anymore, but you know that people like to talk about celebrations of life or memorial services. And it sounds nice. People come together to recount the accomplishments of the person who died and the relationships that they enjoyed with that particular individual. And we know what is tempting us as Christians to also kind of take an example from that and say, well, maybe we should do that too. Celebration of life, memorial service. But we should recognize, brothers and sisters, that doing that goes contrary to our very Christian hope. For to be sure, we may be thankful to the Lord for what a loved one has meant in our life, being a faithful, loving husband, father, member of the congregation, friend, many things to be thankful for. There will also be many good memories that will be worth to speak about, but in a way, those memories will also make the loss all the more painful. But if we are going to grieve in a Christian way, then we should not be so focused on looking back on what took place in the past, but we should be looking ahead. And if we understand our Christian hope right, we will also realize that one of the sad things of death is that the person died before the Lord Jesus Christ has reappeared in glory. Every death is a painful reminder that we are not there yet, which no amount of celebrating a person's life is, be, is possible to soothe over. So keep on looking ahead. And we need to encourage one another to look ahead to the day of the resurrection. And even then, not so that we will be able to catch up with our loved one again, but that we will together meet the Lord in glory. That we will together see him coming from the heavens and we will meet him in the air and then we will enter the new heaven and new earth. In effect, of course, we... We do that already in principle, but do we always let that penetrate? You know, when we conclude the graveside ceremony, how do we kind of finish, you could say, even the whole formal part of the funeral? We often do that by singing or reciting the Apostles' Creed. Concludes with the words, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. That's our hope, and that's our comfort. It also makes our grieving different from those who have no hope. If we want to talk about celebration, if we want to grieve differently as Christians, then don't have a celebration of life, but have a celebration of hope. Look ahead to what we will have in Jesus Christ. That is something that, that will warm your heart. That is something that will carry us through in the end. Otherwise, we are no different from the world. All we're doing then is looking back, finding comfort in human accomplishments, rather than finding our comfort in Christ's accomplishment, what he has done. He has died, he has risen, and what he will do, he will come in glory, and he will raise all his children together, and we will meet each other in the air. That gives us hope, that gives us the ability to move on and face all the challenges that come and all the pain that will fill our heart. That's bound to come. But there we have something to hold on to, celebration of hope. 
And so, brothers and sisters, let us impress on our hearts and minds that our grieving over those who have fallen asleep is shaped by the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our resurrection. It is grounded in the resurrection of Christ. When he comes, he will first raise those who have fallen asleep, and then all believers, the church of all ages, will, as bride, meet the bridegroom in the air. And let us encourage one another with these words. For yes, we will grieve. That's normal. That's natural, you could say. But we will grieve as those who have hope. And so always be able to go on. Amen.